Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the podcast to mark a major anniversary in Elvis Costello's career. July 2022 brings the 45th anniversary of his acclaimed debut album, My Aim Is True. In this episode, we're going to look back on the record, revisit the songs and consider its place in the Costello canon. To do it, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by someone who's written the definitive book about My Aim Is True, as well as being an author. He's a movie critic, TV presenter, radio host and someone who knows there's no such thing as an original sin. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Richard Krause. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Good, good. You know, it's uh, it's interesting to uh, have this record kind of come to the fore in my head again. I, I say in the book, and it is true, that I don't think a week has gone by uh, since 1977 that I haven't listened to at least part of this record. And sure enough, on Monday, I found myself listening to Welcome to the Working Week again, <laughs> just to get myself jazzed up for, for the day. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it's fun to be able to talk about it again. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, you are the man to do it, given you've, as I say, have written the definitive book about it, which we'll talk about as we uh, as we go through. I suppose the thing about album anniversaries is they're a great excuse to go back to the record. Also make people feel quite old, I think, as well, don't they? <laughs> well, it, it it certainly kind of makes me feel, when you said 45 years, I had a little pang, you know. I, I, I was a kid uh, when this record came out, and I lived in a very small town. I lived in what we were talking about before we turned the tape on, uh, the other Liverpool, Liverpool, Nova Scotia in Canada. And uh, it was, uh, or it still is, a very small town uh, located on the east coast of Canada. And we didn't get all the records, and we didn't have a radio station that was going to play new music necessarily, unless it was uh, the top 40. And so I knew all about Elvis Costello, and I mean, I knew everything about him from reading Cream and Hit Parader and uh, the New Musical Express, magazines I could actually get in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Mm. I read all about him. I knew all about the Sex Pistols. I knew all about the Ramones. I knew all about that entire generation of music before I ever heard a note of it. And I, I was attracted to... Uh, the style. I was attracted to the attitude. I loved the interviews because they weren't like the interviews that you would read with the members of Boston or, you know, Fog Hat or somebody like that. It was a much different kind of vibe and it it felt new and fresh and exciting. And Elvis Costello of all of them kind of stuck out ahead of the pack. And, and as I say, you know, it was a long 45 years ago. Now this is probably, I'm talking about 46 years ago, because I think there was a lot of pre-press when this album came out before it came out uh, that, you know, it's exciting to think back to that kind of more naive time i think where uh music you had to work for it a little bit to be able to find it you didn't just dial something up on spotify or or whatever uh people use now uh you actually had to kind of fight for it and i had to fight to hear this and and it was one of the most rewarding 
musical experiences uh, of my life. Yeah. Well, didn't you sent your brother out to hunt for it, I think, didn't you? I, I did. So my brother lives in Halifax, which was a couple of hundred miles away. And uh, they had a big store. There was a big chain of record stores in Canada called Sam the Record Man. And they were uh, very popular and they were the place to go. They had all the cool stuff. Um, years later, when I moved to Toronto, uh, it was a place that I was in and out of every single day. And what I used to love about Sam the Record Man is the staff that worked there were so knowledgeable that you could say, hey, I'm thinking about this song. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, it's on the third floor. It's called this. And, above it. and they just knew everything. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I sent my brother uh, with a list to Sam, the record man. Uh, he was coming home for a, a visit. And I, I sent him a list and said, these are the records that I want. And he came back with a stack of of LPs, uh, which were three or four dollars at the time, which was more money than I probably had. So he was probably being kind and picking up some stuff. But there was some stuff in there. There was a heart album I remember that I wasn't, you know, overly excited about, but whatever, I'll give it a listen. Talking heads, absolutely. Um, you know, a couple of things and then my aim is true. And I remember putting my aim is true on the turntable, uh, my crappy little turntable at home putting the, the needle on it. And as the welcome to the working week started, I just felt like I never have to listen to REO Speedwagon or Chicago or any of these other bands that the radio was telling me that I'm supposed to love ever again, because I think I've just found my sound. I've just found my music. My dad I uh, was older, obviously he, uh, but not just older for that. He was generation generationally a little older. So he was still listening to big bands and Bing Crosby. That's the music that defined him. My brother, a little older than I was, uh, Jimi Hendrix was the music that defined him. And as soon as I put that needle down on the record, I really felt like I found the music that defined me. And I love the anger of it because I was this kid in a small town that dreamt of not being a kid in that small town. And uh, I was frustrated by being there. And I was frustrated that there was all this cool stuff in the world. And I wasn't able to lay my hands on it. Uh, and it just all those things that I had thought of, and probably never really articulated, because I didn't really know why I was frustrated all the time. But there was just something about the sound of my aim is true that just made all that swirl around in my head. You describe it in the book as just under 40 minutes of punk pop songs that changed everything for me. It did change everything for me. I, I listened to side one, flipped it over, listened to side two, flipped it over, listened to side one again and over and over and over. And it's one of those records that I don't really have uh, a favorite song. You know, back in those days, you bought albums if you liked one song, and then hopefully you'd listen to the rest of it and there'd be two or three other cuts or more that you really liked. Uh, and now, uh, My Aim is True, start to finish, I still think is is uh, a work of genius. And, and I don't have a favorite. Mm -hmm. I just like the record. I think of it as one long song, as one whole, rather than a, a series of songs uh, strung together. Yeah. And when your brother brought that vinyl back with the stack of other ones, how important was the artwork and the look of the album mm -hmm. at that time? Absolutely uh, crucial. I mean, you know, rock bands uh, had uh, had a look. You know, the the first band that I ever saw was uh, a Canadian band at an arena in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, called the Stampeders, and they had a bunch of hits in Canada and were were 
a popular touring band. And the thing that was great about them is that they really toured the country. They played in every little town, you know, every 30 miles, they do a show and, and they could pack a, a, a small hockey arena. And, uh, but they wore satin jackets and they had big, you know, pompadour haircuts. And, and I remember the guitar player had a silver guitar so that when the lights hit it, there was sort of like a prism. And I thought, wow, that was really cool. But there was something about the look of the Elvis Costello album that not only, and I didn't, I don't know that I knew what pop art was at the time, but it felt like pop art to me. And it also felt kind of like anti rock and roll almost mm. it is like this this guy on the on the front that didn't have a silver guitar that didn't have his hair all hairsprayed up and and you know wasn't wearing a, a, a satin jacket he was uh doing his own thing walking his own walk and you know this is before uh, uh mtv or what we had in canada much music it was before you had access to seeing a lot of bands. You could read about them in magazines. You could watch Don Kirshner's rock concert of Friday nights at midnight or Saturday night live would have a band on, on Saturdays. Uh, and then whoever they happen to have on was the band that you talked about all week long. Did you see Alice Cooper? Did you see, you know, and you hoped it was somebody cool, but they all had kind of a, a, a look about them. A lot of the really popular bands, Elvis Costello didn't have that. He walked his own path. And uh, that to me uh, was really like the, the, the sound of, and the look of rebellion was that idea that he didn't look like he would be on the same stage as REO Speedwagon or Chicago. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with those bands, but they weren't for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get stuck into the songs on the album, let's just set the scene in 1976, Declan McManus is a married father of one working as a computer operator at Elizabeth Arden. He's also a prolific songwriter who sent demo tapes to a host of record labels in London without success. A new label, Stiff Records, opens for business and McManus becomes a regular visitor to its offices after work, playing new songs and attracting interest as a songwriter. He says, I'd arrived just as everyone was either about to leave for the pub or when an extra pair of hands was needed to transfer boxes of seven-inch singles from factory-issue paper sleeves into picture covers. I took to the work happily as it made me feel like I was in show business. He then cuts a series of demos that earn him the opportunity to record his debut album at Pathway Studios. And this really is a case of the planets aligning for him. Right place, right time, right record label. And Wright Studio, I think. So yeah. Pathway Studio uh, is a place that doesn't exist anymore. I think it's an apartment now because it, it, it's been a number of things. It's been renovated a few times. But around this time, it was a demo studio. And it's tiny. It was, I can't remember the dimensions, but just big enough for, there was a piano in the corner, apparently, uh, and the guitar players, if you had more than one guitar player, you kind of had to stand with your, your the, the neck of your guitar pointing straight up because there wasn't enough room uh, for everyone to have their guitars pointed in the regular way. And uh, the Dire Straits recorded the demo for um, Sultans of Swing there, uh, you know, the Nick Lowe practically lived there apparently re recording and, and doing demos and some albums and it was cheap. So they record my aim is true at pathway studio with the members of Clover Huey Lewis's backing news who arrived in England, you know, two seconds before punk rock hit thinking that they were going to make a splash and become this country rock 
sort of sensation over there and then realized immediately that they were dinosaurs, but they were signed to stiff records and they, they got put to work. And I just think that you have the combination of this band of very seasoned players. Elvis Costello was a huge fan of the band and other uh, bands like that. So he knew how to talk to these guys and, and how to get his vision across, I think. And then you cram them all in this tiny little rock and roll room and you let them figure it out. And you've got Nick Lowe, who they call Basher because he was just like, put, you know, bash it down and we'll figure it out later. You know, we'll record it and we'll remix and we'll fix it later if we have to. But I just love that that record feels like a rock and roll record because of course the best rock and roll is always, you know, you hear it in a small sweaty club somewhere uh, and it's dark and it's just like not quite big enough for you to dance the way you want to dance. Uh, and, and the pathway studio, I think is the perfect uh, situation to capture what Elvis had in his head at the time, had they offered him a huge studio, he absolutely, they probably would have gone for that. And I bet you the record would sound different. And I, I don't know. I, I was going to say not as good. I don't know if that's true, but certainly it would have sounded different. I think that room made all the difference. Yeah, and the players make a difference as well. As you Absolutely. say, it's Huey Lewis's uh, groups. So we've got John McPhee on guitar, John Chambotti on bass, Sean Hopper on keys, and Mickey Shine on drums. And that combination gives this record a very distinctive feel. This doesn't sound like anything he would go on to do with the attractions. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like the attractions. Uh, uh, the attractions played everything at about double the speed that uh, was on the the album when they started playing all this stuff live. And uh, it, it, it has a, a, a different feel. The Clover was a different band. They were, you know, someone who uh, had come up playing, you know, in San Francisco and when you wore flowers in your hair and the whole thing. And, and they, they came through that scene and they ended up in London at the worst time to be that kind of band in London, probably. Yeah. Uh, but they were sort of in a lot of ways in the right place at the right time, because this is a stone cold classic album. And, by and large, it's because of these players who were a little older than Elvis was. They'd been around, they were seasoned, and uh, they they brought some of themselves to the to the record. But for me, uh, it is you know the album that you get when you have someone who's young and inexperienced but really cocky uh, trying to to uh, fit you know, that square peg into a round hole. So he's got this amazing band and he's just, he's trying to bring them around to his way of thinking and they're pushing back a little bit and that tension makes for amazing music. Now that your pictures in the paper being rhythmically admired, you can have it one that you have ever desired. All you gotta tell me now is why, 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 welcome to the working week. Oh, I know it don't. The album opens with the track that you were telling me a few minutes ago that you kicked off your week with a couple of days ago. Welcome to the working week. I love this song. And, and again, you know, when uh, it 
started for the first time. It's the first Elvis Costello that, that uh, entered my head, entered my consciousness. And uh, it sounded, you know, the opening kind of sounds like it could be a doo-wop record or, or something. You don't know where it's going. Uh, and then for me, uh, it, the way it kicks off and the lyrics, I didn't understand them at all at the time, but I loved, uh, well, I, I understood. I feel like a juggler running out of hands. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I love that kind of metaphor, but I didn't understand what being rhythmically admired meant until a little bit later that it was, you know, an allegory for <laughs> masturbation. Took me a long time to figure that out, but uh, but I just loved the wordplay in it. And again, when you have uh, a song like that that has a familiar kind of vibe to it, right? It it, it felt like it could be you know a Buddy Holly song, I suppose, or or one of those you know nineteen fifties rockers. A little faster, a little rougher, uh, uh, but then you you throw those lyrics on top of it, and you know you've got uh, someone who's who's again mixed and matched styles of this kind of literary style of of telling a story with the lyrics, and then this just absolutely banger of a song that uh, you say, you know, earlier, I told you, I started my week with, I start most weeks with this <laughs> song. I think, you know, Monday morning, you sit down, cut it on and just, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready now for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. Has there ever been a better or more ear catching opening lyric to a debut album before than this? Because this is setting your stall out straight away that here's someone different. Is here's someone different, and it's like welcome. It's welcoming, right? He's like you saying welcome. Come on in. In Canada, I grew up watching a show called uh, The Friendly Giant, and The Friendly Giant started every show. He lived in a he he was a giant that lived in a in a castle for some reason with a chicken and a giraffe. Okay. <laughs> who go figure but he used to open the door he'd say you know there was a little opening part and he would open the door and welcome everybody in and you know in a lot of the uh uh work that i've done since on the television show that i did the talk show i did for four years i borrowed that i stood outside it was set in a bar we had a a, a set that looked like a giant bar and i interviewed people at the bar and but i would start outside and welcome the audience in because i think it's so important it just sets it up differently. It makes it feel welcoming. It makes it feel a little different. It's not, you're not just there. You're being welcomed in. You're one of us. Come on in. And I kind of feel that about Welcome to the Working Week, even though the lyrics are a little caustic and, and uh, that, but he's welcoming you in and, and it's uh, a, an absolute brilliant kickoff for this. Yeah. And I think you say in the book, maybe not about this song, but about the album generally, here is someone who is not going to deal in cliche in their lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. And that was another thing. So, you know, in all the music that I was being told to like on the radio, and it's a radio station that I would end up working for uh, a couple of years later, probably, um, (laughs) uh, maybe a year and a half later, uh, but they played what was popular and what was popular, generally speaking, uh, were songs that were kind of moon in June and, you know, uh, had uh, sort of simplistic ideas, love songs. Again, a lot of people love these songs and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, casting a, a, you know, a, a, I'm, I'm not saying they're terrible songs, but they didn't speak to me. Elvis Costello made me work for it a little bit. I had to work to figure out what the lyrics were about. And I liked that. And I also liked 
because it was an album that was very uh, English in its references that I, I had to kind of figure that out too. I didn't, I didn't yeah. understand some of the language and the, and the name dropping uh, uh, on the album because they just, they, they weren't, it was 1977. I, I couldn't look them up on the internet. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so um, the, the lyrics for me, uh, you know, and, and, and not just then, but in the 45 years since that I've listened to Elvis Costello, the lyrics are always, uh, you know, for me, one of the, the, the most interesting parts of, of his music. Track two on the album, Miracle Man. Why do you have to say there's always someone who can do it better than I can? Isn't that like the the sort of teenage boy frustration just bubbling to the fore? You know, this insecure kid uh, who, um, you know, for, you know, for my money uh, at 13 years old or whatever I was when I first heard this, I was like, yes, I like, I understand how he feels there. So he's speaking directly to me, but in a way, again, that, that was edgier and more authentic than I might've heard in a song by one of the, the big label bands. And, and, you know, when you have that kind of honesty and authenticity, you know, winging at you, coming uh, straight for you from an album like this with that kind of vocal, with that kind of pent up sound that he had. He sings very loudly when he's in the studio and you really get a sense of that on this album. And uh, it, it, for me, uh, really just felt uh, true. It felt authentic and true. and And that's what I was looking for. Yeah, and that's a recurring theme, isn't it, through his career? You think of things like New Lace Sleeves and obviously a, a track coming up like Mystery Dance on this album. He's not the kind of uh, the great heroic figure the way that some rock bands present themselves. He is the inadequate who is unable to do all the things that he wishes he was able to do. And I think that's one of the things that makes it relatable, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the the, the great rock and roll fantasy of being the guy that gets all the girls the the uh you know the aloof rock star that that you know rides around in the back of limousines and things uh all that stuff is just that it's a fantasy it's it's part of the myth making of of rock and roll uh but then you have a guy like Elvis Costello that comes along and writes songs that actually are about uh and it's not emo you know it's not oh look at me it's really terrible to be me it's just this is how I'm feeling right now and I'm angry about it I don't like it but uh i'm going to get it out somehow and it's kind of like a you know the a primal scream of a sort of rock and roll if you keep it in it'll make you nuts so you have to get it out somehow yeah and this track gives us a a very early indication of that wonderful intricacy that he would well continues to have in his lyrics through his career the line about the the 10 inch bamboo cigarette holder the black patent leather gloves Uh, they're things that you don't get in other people's songs aren't they they are. And again, you, I think he brings uh, a literary tradition with him uh, that, that is partially from 
uh, you know, being very well read, uh, partially from having a musician father who probably, you know, had records, uh, Cole Porter records kicking around the house, that kind of thing that might've influenced him a little bit, but also um, listening to uh, other kinds of bands uh, that would have more intricate lyrics than a lot of the other punk bands were. And this isn't a punk record particularly, but um, the, the other punk artists who were coming out around the same time didn't seem to have the same reference points and they had the same anger they had the same uh, kind of maybe self-depreciating way of with a lyric, but they didn't have the same reference points. And and for me, that's one of the things, as I've said already, that it, it's the lyrics have always been uh, so important to me uh, with Elvis Costello because I, they just don't sound like anybody else. Oh, I know that she has made a We move on to No Dancing. And you mentioned with Welcome to the Working Week, that song sounded like it could have gone anywhere at the start. And No Dancing's quite similar. You could imagine that as being a 60s girl group when the when the drums kick in at the start. And then, of course, we go somewhere different with it. Yeah, I think he's wearing his influences on a sleeve here a little bit with this one uh, and, and with a, a, a number of the songs uh, on this album. But uh, this is a, a song for me that uh, is kind of like a great third track too mm. you know you've had this uh this ripper of a of a, of an opener and then a, a song that kind of makes you miracle man that makes you have to think a little bit about the lyrics and 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 starts to give you the tone of what the album's going to be then you've got a little bit of a of a of a you know like a palate cleanser here with this one almost yeah. when you have uh that 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 beat at the beginning that changes and becomes something else and and for my money this is uh like the spacer on side one uh that keeps you interested uh and and asks you know or, or tells you this record isn't going to sound the same way all the way through yeah. we're going to shake things up a little bit yeah talking about shaking things up a bit when would you have first got to see elvis live back then seen him a few times uh uh i don't remember the first time i saw him i i wrote about music for for a long time and so i saw a lot of like a lot of artists uh but i missed the legendary show here at the alma combo uh where he did um uh, the the the, it was a radio broadcast at the same club that the Rolling Stones recorded Love You Live in and a number of other things. And uh, I was not at that show. That was 1978. Uh, but it's available on CD. It's uh, part of the Ryko set, I think. And uh, and it's incredible. I saw him most recently just before the pandemic. And uh, this, he, he takes a break now. The second half of that show was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. The first half was great. Uh, the, the first, he played Imperial Bedroom, and it was fantastic. The second half of that show, he was playing songs that he had written that afternoon that he was reading the lyrics off of an iPad. Uh, he 
uh, was talking to the audience in a really kind of charming and interesting way. Uh, he uh, radically reinterpreted a number of songs that people know. And I kept thinking, you know, after walking out of the theater, after watching him for two and a half or almost three hours, that Elvis Costello could get on that stage and play for an hour and you know, 15 minutes or an hour and a half uh, and just play what's so funny about peace, love and understanding and Alice and, and a handful of others over and over again. And people would say that is one of the best shows I've ever seen. Instead, he pushes it every single time out and does something different and interesting. And he is not content uh, to let the uh, back catalog just be the back catalog. He uh, absolutely thinks of it as a living thing that's open for reinterpretation, and I love that. Once upon a time, I had a little money. Government burglars took it long before I could mail it to you. Still, you are the only one. Now, I can't let it slip away. So here's the man with the ticker tape that tries to take it. This is what I'm going Track four on the album is Blame It On Kane. This is one of my favorites, and I I love this version of it that's on the album, obviously. I also love the acoustic version, the demo version that yes. Elvis recorded, I think, in his bedroom mm -hmm. uh, that is fairly easy to find. Uh, it's part of uh, uh, one of the box sets that I have here, and uh, it really gives you a sense of what he had in his head. Then you hear uh, what Clover and Elvis does with it. Uh, afterwards and from from my money it's one of the uh standout cuts on the uh album it is a song that again so much of this is about blaming it is about uh um bad feelings it is about anger and this is you know blame it on kane is, is you know don't blame it on me Just, you know shuffling off the the responsibility i guess uh to someone else but it it, it thematically it, it fits in with uh, the the emotion, uh, I guess the emotional content of so many of the other songs. But I love uh, a couple of uh, lines in it. Um, you know, government burglars yeah. is such a great uh, turn of phrase there. You know, you've got, once again, the, the energy of the of the era and i i say it in the book and i'll say this isn't a punk record but it was definitely an album that was recorded during the punk era and so you you have that kind of energy in the air you can kind of feel it on the record but then you've got this formalism uh with the with the lyrics and the 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 cleverness of them and you put those together and you know you get a, a really potent song like blame it on kane that has this this great imagery uh memorable uh phrases in it like you know government burglars uh and and you've got a song that for me is a is an all-timer yeah he did a terrific version of this live a couple of years ago with larkin poe would have been on i think the detour tour in the mid 2010s uh which was terrific and that kind of refreshed the song for me because it was getting it in a different way and then that gets you back into it again doesn't it that way but um yeah it's interesting when you're talking about the demos because 
as well as the tracks that we get on My Aim Is True. He's got so many other good songs even at that early stage of his career. Some make it onto B-sides, but then you've yep. got things like Imagination is a Powerful Deceiver that doesn't go anywhere and you think, what a fantastic song. That would be you know, the key song for anybody else, and for him it doesn't even make it to the full record. Yeah, I, it's remarkable that when Elvis Costello recorded uh, My Aim Is True, despite not really having played live all that much, oh, he had, but it, he had been part of a duo and there's, you know, there were other things that happened, uh, but he was fully formed. It feels to me when this record uh, came out uh, image wise, whether that was on purpose, foisted upon him, whatever it might be uh, image wise, uh, songwriting wise, absolutely. And performance wise, this was an artist that, uh, for me, uh, feels like he was on his third or fourth album, not his first. This is Dangerous Amusements, a podcast with a suitcase of phony wisdom to dispense. Seeing you after so long, girl And with the way you look I understand that you were not impressed But I heard you let that little friend of mine Take off your party dress Track five on the album, A Biggie One of the ones that really established his reputation to a wider audience is, of course, Alison and of course, it's the song that doesn't really sound like anything else on the album. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, it, again, lyrically, it, it's connected all the way through. You know, there's that that sort of hint of misogyny, I guess, that 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 it, it is part of the uh, of of the lyrics of a number of these songs. Uh, but it's also a song that that feels like it could be a love song. I'm sure people have played this at their weddings, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, but but it's not, I don't think. And I think it's much more barbed than that. And I think that's one of the things that that makes it so interesting that push and pull between this beautiful melody that they have and these lyrics that just have enough of an edge to them that they can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. But uh, for me, this is not a song that is written as a love song in, in any way. Uh, but it is a beautiful song. And I, I think it's one that a lot of people, it's the, it's the doorway that a lot of people walked through to, uh, if, to access uh, My Aim Is True or Elvis Costello. But then you do that and you find that the rest of the record doesn't really sound like that. And, uh, you know, it, it's always an interesting thing when you have the one song that becomes huge off an album uh, that is so different, but uh, it's still, it's a, it's a fantastic song. I've seen him perform this song a number of times uh, in vastly different ways uh, than uh, it appears on the album. And, you know, the last time I saw him, it was pretty much a cappella, him and a couple of backup singers, very minimal guitar. And uh, it really stands the test of time. It's just a, a, a beautifully crafted and beautifully written song. Allison, I know this world is True. 
released as a single in the UK, but perhaps surprisingly failed to chart at all, although it was, of course, picked up uh, by Linda Ronstadt as well. And Elvis, of course, gaining the royalties from that, which, as he says, gave him the opportunity to go on and do some of the things that he wanted to do. Um, But perhaps surprising it didn't get anywhere in the charts, even though, as you say, there's more going on here than perhaps some people think at a more superficial level. Yeah, and you never know, right? You never know uh, what's going to happen with the song. Had that been released two months before, three months later, the following year, it may have been a hit. Uh, it, it, it is never, well, I always think of what they say about the movie business. And uh, in the movie business, they say the only thing that everybody knows is that nobody knows anything. And so you never know what's going to be a hit, really. You can have a pretty good idea. If you're making Marvel movies right now, you probably, it's a pretty safe bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you never really know. Uh, it's always a crapshoot to put something out there. And so much of it is dependent on time and place and uh, what was happening in you know the world when this song came out. And it just wasn't the right time for it. Although you know, 45 years later, you still hear it all the time. People are still re-recording it. Uh, It's one of those songs that has become a perennial, even though it wasn't a big hit at the time. Mm. Costello said he based the chorus for the song on Ghetto Child by the Detroit Spinners. It was recorded during the second session for the album. Nick Lowe later told the BBC, that was the day when I thought this is something seriously happening. He gave off something. You could tell that here was somebody different for someone as young as he was to be so clear and so in control of what he was trying to portray and get across was maturity beyond his years. And that's so true, isn't it? To think that he's in his early 20s when he's coming up with some of these lines. It is remarkable what he was producing at such a young age. It really is. It really is. I I, I don't really know what more to say uh, other than, you know, this, this great literary tradition that seems to have been passed through to him somehow uh, and, and, and a care and a craftsman-like uh, attention to the lyrics of these songs uh, is one of the reasons that we're listening to this 45 years later in, in such an adoring way. And, you know, when you think about other albums that came out uh, contemporaneously with this one, good records, lots of really great records. This one for me, though, in terms of craft, uh, still holds up. If somebody, if this was somebody else's first record today, I'd buy it and be blown away by it, I think, still. Now everybody's breaking up somebody else's home Before somebody else starts breaking up their own I get you in my dreams, you should do the things you see It's not that it's so much fun, but it's safer that way Sneaky feelings, sneaky feelings You can't let those kind of feelings show I like to get right through the way I feel for you But I still got a long way to The next track on the album is Sneaky Feelings, and this has one of my favourite lyrics in it as well when he talks about, you can force me to use a little tenderness, which I enjoy that um, that idea of... It's a bit like Ringo Starr warning people with peace and love not to contact him. To force somebody to use tenderness is an interesting thought. It is, and it's one of those, uh, I guess, stylistic things that people that that writers use sometimes you you put the heart against the soft the sweet against the sour the you know words that don't seem like they should fit together but they form such an evocative um uh image that they stay with you and you know and again this sneaky feelings there's something kind of subversive 
about uh, the, the the title of it. It's an upbeat song, which doesn't seem to really match the, I mean, the, the sneaky feels kind of, the word itself feels uh, less menacing perhaps than it, than, than uh, some other choices he, he could have used for that particular uh, word in the title. Uh, but the, the music is so uh, uh, upbeat that it just feels like there's contradictions all the way through this uh, song. And I think, again, that's one of the things that keeps it interesting. And, and, and every time you listen to it, perhaps you hear something more and to be, you know, in your early twenties and, and have that idea, I would imagine came from years of sitting at home in a bedroom, listening to records and analyzing them and figuring out what worked for, you know, what, what, what works for you? What, why am I listening to this? So often, you know, popular culture is just treated as uh, disposable. There's something that isn't that important, but popular culture is of course the touchstone that we have for our, for our lives, everything. It's our culture. It's the, it's, it's the important stuff uh, or, or one of the important things and, and to analyze it in a, in a way that Elvis Costello clearly did when he was growing up and listening to those songs and figuring out why the songs that he loved were great. And then internalizing those rules that he learned and then uh, spewing them out again, writing songs that what seems to be an incredible clip and coming up with a song like sneaky feelings uh, that clocks in at two minutes and nine seconds. It does not overstay. It's welcome. It's uh, it's quick. And, uh, and I think quite brilliant. Mm. It's interesting when you talk about Elvis sitting in his room listening to those records over and over again because I know you say in the book that when you were writing uh, Elvis is King that's what you did with My Aim is True and you were, you were playing them constantly over and over again. Did that process change your relationship with any of these songs or did, did it reveal things that you hadn't previously picked up on? Probably. I mean, you know, I, I wrote the book five years ago and I uh, I listened to it really intensively uh, while I was writing every time I was writing uh, that was playing and, and it forced me, I think it sort of confronted me. Uh, I had to think about it in a way because I was not one of those people that sat down and, and tore the songs apart. When I first heard it, I let them wash over me. I let them uh, become uh, what uh, I, I let them sonically just do what they were going to do. And uh, that's how I initially enjoyed this record. And then I started to pick away at it a little bit, but I wasn't like Elvis that sat in the, in the room, listening to it, trying to figure out why it was great for me. It was just great. And I, 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 I accepted that when I wrote the book, because I pitched it, my publisher came to me and said, we were doing a series on art and we would love for you to pick a piece of art, whether it's a poem or a painting or a record or something, whatever it is, a movie, uh, that you love and then write, you know, 30,000 words about it. And I, the first thing that came to my mind in that meeting immediately after they said that was my aim is true, but I didn't really know why. I mean, I knew that I loved it. I didn't know whether there was a story really. I didn't know that much about the actual nuts and bolts of the making of the record. I did know that I, I I'm very interested in the time and place that, that gave us that record. Uh, Elvis Costello, obviously have been a fan of and have read about for years. So I, I, I decided to take it on. And so, yeah, I did listen to it differently. And I started to, I think, 
really appreciate it for what it is, which is, you know, this finely crafted record by someone who was of an age who I guess would be, I don't know, prodigy. Man, I don't know. Man, that's overstating things a little bit because he was in his 20s. But but certainly someone who was advanced uh, beyond uh, his years. Uh, and and then the the even more of the beauty of the lyrics started uh, uh, coming out and 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 seeping into my consciousness, and I just I, I found myself falling in love with the record all over again. And here we are, still talking about it all these years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after sneaky feelings, if you're a British listener in 1977, that marks the end of the first side of the record but if you're listening on your side of the water well there's another treat in store for you watching the detectives That's the song that probably for me uh, in the the early stages of my listening to this record became the favorite. Like that was probably the go-to uh, because it 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 had a bunch of influences that sounded kind of unique and interesting to me. The way they were all put together, um, it was uh, um, a, a, the 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 beautiful lyricism of the of uh the the phrasing i just again i keep coming back to lyrics but for me so often that's what it is and and you know the, the that combined with uh this this vocal uh quality that he has um is for me the thing that makes one of the things that makes this record so special is he doesn't sound like anybody else not simply with the lyrics but with his voice and you bang those two together and you've got frank sinatra and his amazing phrasing hmm. no one else could phrase uh, could sing a phrase like frank sinatra you've got you know uh, the the way that john coltrane played nobody could play like that nobody i don't think uh, has that ability to have such raw emotion in their voice uh, with these kinds of lyrics that are about things that a lot of people don't normally write about. I mean, watching the detectives is a film noir uh, put to put to music, and uh, and yet it paints a, a very vivid and very big picture. Yeah, Costello wrote the song after a sleepless, coffee-fueled night listening to The Clash's debut album. He was fascinated by their cover of Junior Mervyn's reggae track, Police and Thieves. And of course, the song recorded during the auditions when Elvis was looking for a backing band. Andrew Bodnar and Steve Goulding were playing with him to audition other players. They'd learned songs from My Aim Is True. And during the day, Costello teaches them this new song, Watching the Detectives. Steve Naive recruited for what would become the attractions he overdubs the piano and organ parts later and this is one of the first real production jobs that they get with Nick Lowe as well isn't it this is not just the group in the studio this is trying to create a bit of a soundscape with the record as well yeah and again it sounds different than the rest of the record and you, you can kind of feel that it was an add-on uh, but it's a brilliant one mm. and and it's it's such a again it's such a memorable song yeah 
I wonder how that changed people's experiences on either side of the Atlantic, you know, to have that in the middle of the record. It's a, it becomes a very different record for, for listeners uh, over on your side of the water and, and over in the UK. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all the other songs, they're all pretty short, except for uh, Waiting for the End of the World is, you know, a, about the, the, the a similar length for a, a pop song of its era. And watching the detectives feels like perhaps it, it, it uh, yeah, I guess I, you know, I don't know that I've ever really thought about that. It must have changed it a little bit because it doesn't sound like the other uh, uh, songs. But for me, it, it, it fit perfectly probably again the naivety of being a 13 year old because it was there it was there and it must have been there for a reason and and uh it's a great song and you know I, i'm not sure i'm not sure what difference i mean what the the question would be for you i've always been used to it being there so it's never it, it was never an issue for me hmm. I wasn't born when this record came out, so yeah. I've got it subsequently when watching The Detectives was added as the final track on My Aim yeah. is True. So it, it doesn't disrupt the flow of the record for me when I'm listening to it because it comes right at the end after waiting for the end of the world. But yeah, I, d I don't know what that would have been like to have it slap bang in the middle because it's such a different thing, but it's such a great song, isn't it? It is. And you know, there, there are people uh, who used to be hired to sequence records. It yeah. was their job to come in and listen to everything and uh, figure out, uh, um, you know, what song flowed into the next. I wonder uh, if I just look at the, the track listings here, all the songs on side one are so short. Uh, Miracle Man's 331, but they're, they're pretty short. I wonder if they just wanted to bulk it up a little bit. I wonder if it was just a, a question of banging it on the end because uh, you could only get so much on one side of an album without affecting the, the tonal quality of the album and that it might have just been as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Well, a wonderful way to end that side of the record for the American yeah. release. And, of course, the song released as a single and reached number 16 in the UK singles chart, so the first real hit of Elvis's yeah. career as a singles artist. You flip that record over onto side two, and we start with a wonderful song written not far from where I'm sat now, actually, because Elvis wrote this one on the train between Runcorn Station and Liverpool Lime Street in mid-1976. <laughs> the Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes. I think you said he wrote it in like 10 minutes or something like that and and what you know, took him so long <laughs> yeah i know right well again when you when you think about that i i think about the story about bob dylan and and uh leonard cohen talking and leonard says to to bob dylan i love tambourine man how long did it take you to write that and and dylan says well it took uh, 10 15 minutes to bang that one out and Dylan says, I love the song Hallelujah. How long did it take you to write that? And Leonard Cohen says, 18 years or something like that. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it shows you that the methodology is different. But I think at this point in his career, songs are just spilling out of him. 
you know, and uh, the angels want to wear my red shoes fits in totally right. It's a song about romantic disappointment. It's a kind of got a lot of surreal imagery in it, but it's still a great kickoff to side two of this album because it's melodic. It's, it's uh, got a, a, you know, as they used to say in the Dick Clark show, got a good beat. You can dance to it, but it, 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 it's a grabber. And for me, uh, you know, after getting that album the first time, flipping it over for the for the the first time and putting the needle down inside two, I was used to uh, the crushing disappointment of often having side two be where all the stinkers were. <laughs> and uh, the the angels when I wear my red shoes certainly kicked things off in a in a very appealing way. Yeah, Costello described the arrival of the song as one of the more startling experiences. I simply wrote it down and heard all of the accompanying music playing in my head. And similar to what you were saying before, Richard, about that experience of quite naive times as a record buyer not being able to access information, but I like Elvis telling the story of it's quite similar for him as the songwriter as well in that he hasn't got any way of recording this down when it comes to him so he has to yeah. block out all of that noise at Lime Street and in the taxi get to his mum's house ignore his mum for five minutes while he gets his guitar and just repeat it until it's locked into his memory bank and of course it's so handy to have your iPhone or whatever device you've got with you but there's I don't know there's something really charming and magical about doing it the old-fashioned way isn't there? Well, I've yeah, I, I have often talked about being a record collector, and I was a record collector for a long time. Um, and I used to write letters to people in Australia saying, I understand that you've got a you know original pressing of James Brown's Christmas album, and you know, can we and it would take months, sometimes it would take years to find something, but there was something about the chase of it that was really fun. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, in, in a situation like this, when you've got Elvis just like fighting to keep the song in his head, there's something kind of great about that. You're fighting for your art. You're fighting to make sure that that you remember this this thing that you know sounds great. And because I would imagine that he could hear it in his head. It was just a question of making sure that it's uh, that it's still there when he gets in front of a, uh, you know, or until he gets in front of a guitar and or a, a tape recorder. With a swastika tattoo There is a vacancy waiting In the English voodoo Carving deeper metal On the filter bar's head When it's had enough for that Maybe you'll take him to bed To teach him he's alive Or he wishes he was dead Our next track is Less Than Zero A song written by Elvis In response to seeing the Uh, fascist leader Sir Oswald Mosley interviewed on BBC television Costello said Mosley seemed unrepentant about his poisonous actions of the 1930s turns it into this remarkable song and again remarkable that this is the subject matter for a song written by a man in his early 20s It's, uh, it's something else isn't it yeah politically involved again now this when i was 13 this was one of the ones that i loved the song but i didn't have a clue of what it was about Mm -hmm. and uh oswald mosley was not uh, a recognized figure here uh or certainly not amongst my 13 year old friends (laughs) and uh (laughs) and so uh i didn't really get what the song was about um but you know years later you you know learn to realize or you come to realize it's about fashion it's about totalitarianism there's 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 a, a richness to the lyrics and again unlike a lot of the other songs on the album 
It's very much of its time. The album sounds of its time musically, uh, but the lyrics are, are rarely as pointed uh, in 1977 as this uh, song is. Still brilliant lyrics, uh, but this was like the, the, the angry uh, punk rock in him coming out, I think, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, railing against what uh, it was happening in his own country. And, you know, he wasn't singing, there's no future. He's, he was literally singing, look, there may be no future mm-hmm. if guys like this are allowed to uh, maintain control. And for me, it's a song that stands the test of time because it is so firmly set in its time and its place that it, to me, it almost, it, it, it sounds uh, kind of universal. This is a song that you can play at a Donald, or no, it's not a song you play at a Donald Trump rally. It's the song that you play at the rally next door to the Donald Trump rally and say, listen to these lyrics. Yeah, Listen to these lyrics because... Uh, this is uh, um, intellectually as as important today uh, as it was when it was written in 1977. Yeah, and we touched on that in previous episodes when you think of songs like Night Rally as well. These are themes that have not gone away and, in fact, seem to have come back with uh, with rather more vengeance than we yeah. would, uh, would wish, haven't they, in recent times. <laughs> Uh, Sir Oswald Mosley served on the Western Front in the First World War before being elected to Parliament at the age of 21. He was elected as a Conservative MP, later crossed the floor to sit as an Independent and then joined the Labour Party. He formed a new party in 1931 and the following year created the British Union of Fascists, openly anti-Semitic, nationalistic and violent. He was later interned and the BUF was proscribed and disbanded. And of course, we would never condone violence in any way, Richard, but I always take a little bit of local pride in the fact that Mosley was knocked unconscious not far from here after trying to address a rally to a few thousand supporters in Liverpool, and he was struck on the head by two stones thrown by anti-fascists in the crowd, which uh, wow. I was always quite pleased when I learned that a few years ago. Um, Absolutely. You know, go us, go us. <laughs> Romeo was restless, he was ready to kill He jumped out the window cause he couldn't sit still Juliet was waiting with a safety net He said, don't bury me cause I'm not dead yet Why don't you tell me about the miserable dance I wanna know about the miserable dance Why don't you show me cause I tried and I tried And I'm still just a fight I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied Our next track is Mystery Dance, and this one, Elvis says, was a song that had originally got the attention of everyone at Stiff Records when he first demoed it for them. And you can see why, right? It's got a vibe to it that feels familiar, sort of 1950s kind of uh, thing, but it's so kind of of that moment in terms of expressing uh, you know, how people are, I've tried and I've tried and I still am not satisfied. It was just like, of course, like this is, this is a, a, a great kind of turn of phrase that spoke, I think, to how a lot of people felt at the time. And, you know, you've got uh, Johnny Rotten uh, in and around this time and the Sex Pistols singing There's No Future. And uh, Elvis Costello is, is singing something different. He's singing like, I've tried. I've tried, I've, you know, and this may be romantically, it could be taken as a larger metaphor for life, though. And, you know, I, I've tried and tried and and still there's no satisfaction. Why is there no satisfaction? Why can there not be that? And, you know, it, it, to have, again, someone at 20, you know, early 20s 
sort of tapping into that zeitgeisty feeling, uh, you know, unless it was just something hanging in the air in London in that, you know, the, the week that he wrote that, uh, you know, he's digging deeper and I think really burying himself uh, in this. Now he's 22. He had tried, he had tried to settle down, have that, uh, have a, a job at, you know, as a computer operator, but it just, he wasn't satisfied. And, and I think that's how so many people have felt uh, that this song becomes uh, universal in its appeal. It's specific, I suppose, in, in, in uh, terms of its place on the album and, and what he's singing about, but it's, it's universal for anyone who's really put it out there and only to be kind of slapped back. And this one of those songs that I guess could have set him up as being a songwriter rather than being the performer of the song. And he says at the time we were probably doing nothing more than making a demo for Dave Edmonds to consider. But then, as he says, stiff hear him doing it. And again, perfect timing, the right song at the right time. And he goes on to record it himself, says he didn't want it to swing like an old rock and roll record, although Nicolo does add tape echo to the instruments and voices. Uh, And it's a terrific track. Kind of interesting to think what would have happened, you know, if he had been 10 years previous and living in New York, if he would have been at the Brill building, just banging out songs, you know, for other artists, Uh, because he certainly is able to write songs that other people have turned into hits. He's certainly able to write songs in a really prolific way. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to suggest it was, it's, it's any kind of production line like it was at the Brill building, but he certainly had the brilliance to do it. And uh, it would have been a, an interesting thing to see how his songwriting may have changed if it was not unique to him. Because these are all very much written in his voice, even though they've been recorded by other people since a lot of them. But uh, it would have been interesting to see if, if lyrically they might have changed a little bit uh, to make them a little more commercial, a little more saleable. Um, I doubt it, but yeah. you never know. Well, you're right, because he's commented himself, hasn't he, that his songs don't get covered a huge amount compared to uh, maybe one or two other songwriters, perhaps because of those qualities that you talk about. But you wonder if he'd gone specifically down a songwriter route, presumably he would have he would have tailored things a little bit differently, you imagine? I would imagine so. I, 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 you know, I, I'd love to hear some of that. And I'm sure, you know, every now and again, he's written a song with a, with an ear towards someone else recording it and, and, and made it a little less in his own voice, but I'm glad he didn't go that route, but man, it would have been interesting to hear what he would have come up with. You straight there. I'm in prison, but I can't contemplate being trapped between the doctor and the magistrate. One of these days, I'm gonna pay it back and pay it back on one of these days. One of these days, I'm gonna pay it back and pay it back on one of these days. Payback is again one of those songs uh, on this album. That is, um, it's a wall of <laughs> lyrics here for uh, for one of these songs, and and you know you 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 hear a line like one of these days I'm gonna pay it back, uh, pay it back one of these days. So um, it, it's written in kind of a uh, uh, there's I don't know what you call exactly that that uh, lyrical trick 
I'm going to pay it back, pay it back one of these days where you just inverse the line mm -hmm. uh, from, from line to line. Uh, but it's, 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 it's effective. But I would imagine that this song, it feels to me like it was influenced by country music. It feels like it was influenced by the band. Maybe uh, there's, there's uh, again, uh, one of those, I, I, I don't know that I have a lot to say about this one, but, you know, where he talks about being trapped between the doctor and the magistrate, hmm. uh, it's like, well, your health or you're, you're in jail. Like, there, yeah. There's, there's a lot of richness to it. Um, but, uh, um, for me, I think this is probably the song that it, I, I feel like I hear the influences more on this song than maybe on any of the other records on the album. Mm. And this feels musically like a song that would have come very easily to the guys from Clover. Yeah. This feels yeah. like absolutely up their street and they're talking Elvis's language when they're doing a song like this. Well, yeah. And, and I don't know because I can't remember now what order the songs were recorded in, but maybe this was the first one. And they're figuring, you know, they're figuring out how they're going to work together because it does very much sound to me like a song that, that Clover might have played. penultimate track on the album is I'm Not Angry and brilliant way to open you're upstairs with the boyfriend while I'm left here to listen sets you up perfectly for another you know <laughs> dark scene isn't it yeah it does it, it, it's a very dark song the most ironic title probably on the album <laughs> and <laughs> and and uh I mean again listen to these lyrics I, you know uh, 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 this is someone who's bearing himself here who feels like they've had a lifetime of of uh you know terrible relationships i don't think he had at that point but uh my my least favorite thing about this song though is the whispered angry yes yes and and for me uh when i hear this song it kind of dates it to that moment when it was recorded in a way that feels like uh production mm. you know that, that it feels like uh, it was a little flourish that the song doesn't need, but it's still an amazing song. It's an amazing song, but my takeaway mostly is, again, I'm looking at the lyrics here. Uh, I'm not angry. And then there's that whispered angry after most of the lines and mm. doesn't really work for me. Mm. Well, I could hear you whispering as I crept by your door. So you found some other joker who could please you more. I love it. It takes it, on it, for, yeah. you know, the line from Miracle Man, doesn't it? About there's always someone better than me out there. Yeah, and and I mean it's the it's the thing that lyrical consistency I think that got this album labeled as misogynistic. I think yeah. uh, when it when it first came out, but I I don't feel like it is. I mean I, I feel like it's just it, it's an album of frustration. It's an album of uh, of anger, but I don't think it's a it's a hateful album. Uh, but I, I I do think that there's certainly a lot of pent up frustration here. Yeah. 
final track on the album is Waiting for the End of the World, a song that Costello told Nick Kent of the New Musical Express that he is the man in the first verse, written after spotting him on the tube. You were obviously pretty out of it because you didn't notice all the other people in the compartment staring at you. I was just amazed that one person could draw that much reaction from others. And from there we get this really rolling story. Everyone refers to it as Dylan-esque and you can understand why. Yeah, you can understand why the lyrics, the the um, the 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 vibe of the song. Uh, I love that he told Nick Kent to his face <laughs> that it's about him. Uh, you know, Nick Kent uh, was one of those characters who uh, I didn't know that much about. I'd read a great deal of his writing in the New Musical Express, uh, but I didn't know that much about him and. You know, other than he wanted to be Keith Richards, I think probably more than Keith Richards wanted to be Keith Richards sometimes. Uh, but I, I, I do love that, uh, again, you've got Elvis, uh, you know, being inspired after the Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes, uh, again, by, you know, taking the the subway, the tube, and, and being inspired to write these incredible songs. And, you know, here's a guy who I think uh, is uh, part imagination, part... Uh, I don't know. He, he seems to uh, be fed by everything that's happening around him. And it was such a fertile and interesting time that, you know, you get this incredible collection of songs. Yeah. And this one, this is a song where you want to know a bit more, I think, about some of the characters in the song and like what happened to them next, you know, what, what happened to the bride and the groom and the congregation yeah. and they've stolen the wedding dress and then you're strolling along. You know, what happens next? I think there's, you know, there's a short story in some of these verses, isn't there? There, there are. And I mean, and, and you know, or a short story, like you've got uh, um, the the... Uh, watching the detectives, which is a film noir, you've got an album of storytelling here, and I, I, it's a word I used a lot earlier on to describe. But literary, it just—it's mm -hmm. a—it's a very literary album uh, where he's introducing you to the character of Elvis Costello uh, in in the lyric content, uh, in the vocal quality, in the aggression that's in a lot of these songs. You're being introduced to a new character in that way, and then that new character, like a narrator is telling you stories from his life and uh, uh, telling you uh, these, the, or introducing you to this, the film noir, watching the, the, the detectives and that sort of thing. So you've got a lot of really interesting things happening here, but it's literary. It just feels to me very literary, but never stuffy and never, uh, um, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to show you how clever he is. He's just clever. And, and as a result, you get these incredible songs. And that's My Aim Is True, a wonderful album, a terrific debut from Elvis Costello and a collection of songs that continue to resonate to this day. You mentioned before, Richard, that you've followed him ever since, obviously, as a fan. What are some of the other favourites from, uh, from the years since My Aim Is True? What do you love from the catalogue? Well, I mean, the 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 first handful of records, obviously, uh, you know, were were records that really spoke to me um, when I was uh, a, a young person because they they felt to me uh, to be uh, songs that were, as I said earlier, my dad had Bing Crosby, my brother had had uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I had Elvis Costello. That that felt to me that 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 
sound and fury that I wanted to express somehow and was never very good at, he was able to kind of do it for me. So those, those uh, uh, bunch of uh, albums, the first few are extraordinarily important to me, but I've loved what he's doing lately. Um, I love the Spanish album, mm-hmm. <laughs> which to me, I just think is uh, an incredible thing. I loved um, the uh, second to last album. The name is escaping me right now. I'm just trying oh, to hey clock face. Yeah, yeah. I loved hey clock yeah. face. And because you've got a guy 40 some odd years into his recording career who is not giving people necessarily what they want. He is uh, still experimenting you know, making music with his mouth. There was all that, that weird percussion done with his mouth on yeah. that album. And and those characters like Elvis Costello, uh, like David Byrne, uh, who are people of a, of a certain age who have just never rested on their laurels and have decided to try and go out and do something fresh and new every single time around will get my 100% attention uh, all the time. And you've got to interview Elvis, I think, haven't you as well? I have, yeah, yeah. I've interviewed him. I've met him a few times, uh, and I've I've formally interviewed him a couple of times. Most recently, uh, around the time of Hey Clockface, wow. and uh, you know, it was. Uh, uh, I mean, to to be able to to chat with him and and really sort of dig down and talk about the music uh, is is always a treat. And uh, for me, you know, at the end of this most recent interview, uh, after as we were just saying, like, you know, thanks, see you later. He said, thank you for the thoughtful questions. And I was like, that to me <laughs> made my 13 year, my inner 13 year old very, very happy. Yeah, brilliant. Well, my aim is true. It's been lavish with praise for 45 years. Let's just pick out a couple of reviews from July 1977. Roy Carr in the New Musical Express, an album of often intense brilliance, Costello must have taken a lot of emotional knocks to come up with such a powerful album, to the extent that one is reticent to guess what lengths he may have to go to to enact a second instalment. And Alan Jones in Melody Maker, My Aim is True could, given the opportunity and exposure, rocket with ease to national prominence. The collection contains enough potential hit singles to stock a jukebox. You can dance to it, swoon to it, sing along with it, laugh and cry with it, smooch and romance to it. (laughs) Richard, I know you've done all of those things with My Aim is True, so perhaps you could close the episode for us, please, with just a brief message to people who've perhaps not checked out this album in a while. Why should they go out and listen to My Aim is True? because it'll change your life. I mean, if you haven't heard it, uh, it really uh, kind of sets up one of the most interesting careers uh, in music of certainly of the 20th century, blending now into the 21st century. Um, It is an album uh, that acts as kind of an entryway. It's the doorway into the pleasures that came after it. Uh, Elvis Costello has made probably an album a year or pretty close to it. ever since then uh and he still is uh surprising sometimes confounding which is great because i don't necessarily need my art to be easy uh i don't mind it if it's if it takes me down a difficult path sometimes uh he is someone who uh, you never quite know what to expect from and in a world where 
you know, we are so often uh, treated to, and I'm using that word in quotes, uh, an algorithm that chooses music that we might like and, and is based on uh, other things that we may have uh, played on Spotify or whatever. Here's an artist whose uh, music won't necessarily come up in the algorithm from album to album because it's all so different. And uh, I just love that he loves music and has never lost the passion that I heard on My Aim is True. Uh, that still feels to me like it's very present uh, on the the newer music, and certainly if you see him live, uh, it just feels like he was he was meant to do this. And you know, for my money, he was fantastic. Richard, thanks so much for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Elvis is King, Costello's My Aim is True by Richard Krauss is published by ECW Press and should, of course, be on every Costello fan's bookshelf. Thank you, Richard, for coming on to talk about the book and the album. Follow at Richard Krauss on Twitter and Instagram and find his website at richardkrauss.ca. My website is dangerousamusements.co.uk, Dangerous Amusements on Insta, at Dangerous Amuse on Twitter. Subscribe to, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements. Sending you our love and vicious kisses.